This is C-SPAN's Afterwards podcast. This week, former Prime Minister of Australia, Kevin Rudd, discusses his book, The Avoidable War, The Dangers of a Catastrophic Conflict Between the U.S. and Xi Jinping's China. If you uh, think that we're just on railroad tracks determined by some uh, Hegelian force um, that we can't do anything about, well, this is what crisis, conflict and war could look like in material terms. He's interviewed by United States Institute of Peace senior expert on China, Carla Freeman. Kevin Rudd, uh, it's my honor and my pleasure uh, to talk to you today about your important new book. If it's you, in it, you uh, take on what you describe as uh, worldviews uh, that have become dominant in both the United States and China. Uh, that you see as uh, pushing the two countries toward war. Uh, This would be, of course, a war uh, that, given the capabilities for lethal force uh, that the United States and China would bring to a conflict, would not just be costly, it would be, as you say, catastrophic. As Australia's former prime minister, twice uh, Mm. its uh, foreign minister and diplomat, a China scholar in your own right, and uh, in the last few years, uh, and a keen and, uh, and, and uh, uh, engaged observer of U.S. policy and politics, uh, you're quite uniquely capable of helping United Americans think through what the tripwires are and other issues that could uh, cause the two countries to go to war. But what I really like about this book is that you try to do much more than that. You're pushing back against the idea that conflict between the United States and China is inevitable. You argue that this is an avoidable war. So let me start by asking you why it is that so many policy observers, many smart people, believe that what war is likely, if not inevitable, and why you, although actually a lot of your book is about exploring scenarios where the U.S. and China do engage in conflict uh, in the coming decade, you call the decade the, the decade of living dangerously, why you think war between the United States and China can be avoided. Well, thank you, Carla, and to all of our friends at C-SPAN for um, engaging in this conversation about the book, uh, which I've been labouring on for a while now. Um, I called it The Avoidable War for a a very direct reason. A friend and colleague of mine, uh, Harvard University, Graham Allison, uh, several years ago produced a book called Destined for War. And uh, Graham and I worked together at uh, Harvard at the Belfast Centre at the Kennedy School, Uh, for uh, some time. But I was always concerned that uh, there would be a predisposition in the United States uh, with Xi Jinping's rise to see this as simply a timetable where eventually these two giant powers would be drawn into crisis, conflict and war. Uh, And secondly, as you've just indicated, this is not just any old war. Uh, I use the term catastrophic on the cover because uh, Ukraine would be a sideshow compared with what this would be. Uh, And in my judgment, it would rapidly move from being regional to becoming global. And if the Chinese Communist Party was to do badly in a conflict, existential survival questions take over for the party, in which case uh, escalation... Uh, even to involve weapons of mass destruction, uh, would uh, enter into the equation. So the idea this is a limited, uh, conventional conflict on the high seas in the South China Sea, the Taiwan Straits or wherever, um, is, I think, a logical nonsense. Uh, The prospects of escalation are real. So why avoidable? Uh, A, I think it's intellectually lazy uh, for the commentariat, uh, including uh, the policy commentariat, to simply describe to people there's a catastrophe coming. Um, I'm not into that business, which is why I oppose you know, Mearsheimer's view of the world, uh, which is uh, hyper-realism, and, uh, and therefore we're kind of uh, locked into the chariots of history here. Mm-hmm. Not my view. And there is a reason for that, which is that as political leaders have agency. They have an ability to make decisions which actually change the course of history was not for Mao and not for Nixon and it wasn't for Joe and Lyon, it wasn't for Kissinger, guess what? The uh, last 50 years would have been radically different. If it wasn't for Brezhnev, if it wasn't for um, Reagan, 
uh, if it wasn't for Gorbachev, what would have happened uh, in terms of uh, US-Russia relations or Soviet relations back then. So political leaders have agency. So what the book seeks to do is to say, if you uh, think that we're just on railroad tracks determined by some uh, Hegelian force um, that we can't do anything about, well, this is what crisis, conflict and war could look like in material terms. But if you think uh, we can make a difference, here's a framework uh, which is not just for the United States, but I argue a joint strategic framework between China and the United States and the leadership of both countries during the decade of living dangerously, uh, which recognises the absolute complexity uh, of uh, strategic competition. But rather than being unmanaged strategic competition, that there are strategic guardrails around it, which I call managed strategic competition. Uh, And that's what the book seeks to elaborate. Well, I do want to explore that concept of managed strategic uh, competition in a moment, but I want to get to this issue of core interests because Mm. one of the elements of this this framework that you propose is that uh, that these the the two countries can coexist and yet uh, stay true to their core core interests. Uh, So I wanted to just start by asking you what those core interests are, and um, for most of us observing uh, the U.S.-China relationship, it seems that some of these core interests are intractable Mm. and major sources of tension and could end up uh, causing conflict. Mm. Uh, So why do you think that these two countries can coexist while upholding these core interests? It's it's the great and fundamental question which the book seeks to respond to. Uh, Within the framework of managed strategic competition, of course, I divide it into three categories. What I describe as strategic red lines, which arise from each country's core interests, both uh, the United States and China. Secondly, a much broader category of what I describe as open, uh, almost rambunctious strategic competition, everywhere from uh, technology through to ideology. And then a third category, which is defined areas of continued strategic cooperation, where it's in both sides' national interests, not in some uh, hand-holding sort of way, uh, to uh, work together. And climate, of course, being the, the centerpiece of that third category. But let's go to your first category, which you legitimately raise as the question. Defining the core interests of the United States, um, far be it from me as a former Australian Prime Minister to tell you as an American and an American uh, uh, public policy uh, network uh, what America's core national interests should be. Uh, But I would hazard a guess uh, that it's along these lines. Um, One, the United States uh, to remain the uh, preeminent global power. Uh, Two, uh, for the United States uh, to remain, as it were, the strategic mainstay of what we call the liberal international uh, order, uh, which is comprised not just of the UN system, but a series of other uh, relationships anchored in the Bretton Woods institutions, and beyond that again, uh, underpinned by a network of uh, global alliances of which the United States uh, and its military remain the fulcrum. Um, And thirdly, that the United States has a deep and abiding national interest in continuing to be uh, the, um, how do I put it in a Rooseveltian term, the arsenal of democracy. Um, Given that democracy and the democratic uh, project is under such challenge around the world. Uh, Now, there are um, a range of sub-national interests which proceed from those three overarching interests which we can come to. But if I was trying to summarise it, it's in those terms. What are the Chinese core national interests, to supplant the United States as the preeminent global power, uh, militarily and economically. And in that score, it's not just a regional ambition by the Chinese. I do believe they have a global ambition. Um, Secondly, um, to begin to change the nature uh, of the international rules-based system uh, in a manner which becomes much more conducive to the interests and values of authoritarian states whether it's Russia, China, or whomever. And thirdly, um, to challenge, therefore, fundamentally, uh, the notion that there is, uh, to use Fukuyama's uh, notion, an end-of-history point, which is about liberal democracy, that the Chinese revolution is, in fact, not just a stepping stone to ultimate liberal democracy, but a stepping stone to uh, Marxism and socialism. 
uh, and that uh, that's now under direct ideological challenge in terms of a Chinese core interest. And there's a final one, which really does bring the, the electric nodes uh, together, which is the future of Taiwan and the future of the unresolved territorial issues in both the East China Sea and the South China Sea and in a different context on the Sino-Indian border. So um, are these reconcilable? Well, in, in the basic question of logic, no. But what is manageable and what I think is therefore doable is a series of mutual understandings, uh, perhaps reached uh, internally and diplomatically, about what constitutes the red lines in the mind of each government uh, and each system which cannot be crossed uh, unless you want to risk uh, uh, moving across that tripwire into the real risk of crisis, conflict and war. Uh, and that can only be done with a level of what I describe as Kissingerian clarity between the two sides as to what that is and for it to be therefore not just policed episodically and accidentally by a mood in the Congress this day or a, or a crazy uh, opinion piece in the Global Times in Beijing the next day. It should be the business of the National Security Advisor of the United States and his or her Chinese counterpart to be the rolling policeman of those red lines. Because if you breach them uh, operationally, then there'll be an opportunity at that level to challenge, to say, are you seriously doing this? Um, in order to invite an opportunity to rectify, um, uh, or in the alternative, to ensure that basically those guardrails remain in place. Well, speaking of uh, Kissingerian clarity, uh, the relationship really has been, uh, for the last 50 years, it's rested on this notion of strategic ambiguity. And I thought maybe I'd just ask you, push a little bit and ask you how this is different from the, uh, the framework that was used uh, and, and uh, devised uh, at the end of President Nixon's 1972 trip to China and articulated in the Shanghai Communique, which really uh, moved uh, a very hostile relationship forward by uh, focusing on what the two countries could do together, but setting aside a whole lot of difficult issues and then moving forward, uh, leaving the issue of Taiwan one that was ambiguous and to be resolved later. Let's go to the core of the, let's call it ambiguity, which is the Taiwan question mm -hmm. itself, because we can't just sweep that to one side as if it's uh, a matter for the future. Unfortunately, um, pushing questions into the future, uh, which is what uh, Henry and Zhou Enlai uh, did in those critical discussions uh, back in 72, is no longer possible uh, because China's now bigger, more powerful, more assertive than it was back then. And secondly, as you know, as a China scholar yourself, Carla, this is an unresolved question uh, for the Chinese Communist Party in terms of its internal party legitimacy, quite apart from its national political legitimacy to reunite the motherland. Um, so it's there, it's real, and it has moved from, as it were, the marginalia of the relationship uh, into, frankly, the middle pages now of the relationship. So I think on this question, Xi Jinping has a timetable. Um, uh, it's unfashionable to talk about defining the timetable, but my own judgment, and I reflect this in the book, uh, is that he's moving towards a timetable in the 2030s. Uh, if, you, if he succeeds in being reappointed as General Secretary at the 20th Party Congress uh, in November this year, then my analysis, and many share this, is that we're likely to see Xi Jinping in office through to at least 2035. Mm. He'd be then 82 years old, um, be uh, almost young enough to run to be President of the United States by then. The, uh, um, but the bottom line is, in, in Chinese historical terms, this is not impossible for being in office, and he has reasonable longevity on his side. So I think we need to have, therefore, this very realistic framework of the next 10 to 15 years when this is likely to come to the boil. The United States, in my judgment, cannot sustain itself as, a credible, uh, as the credible global power in the, if it was to allow uh, China to militarily take Taiwan. Um, 
Because at that point, the confidence in America's strategic guarantees to its allies in Asia, and by extension in Europe, would collapse. Um, that's an unfashionable thing to say, but I think it's the realistic thing to say. So in terms of navigating this particular strategic red line, uh, it is not simply having a series of mutual understandings about what can and should not be done in terms of bringing the Taiwan issue to the boil. Parallel to it is an active series of uh, American uh, countermeasures to restore the military balance in the Taiwan Straits in a manner which is more favourable to the United States than is currently the case. But critically in parallel to that uh, is to um, ensure that the Taiwanese engage in much more effective levels of national self-defence to collectively create the deterrence necessary to push the Chinese timetable out further. Um, Now, the Chinese will be bridling against that and seeking to subvert that, but that's the hard business of managed strategic competition. Well, I want to come back to Taiwan a little bit later in our conversation, but I don't want to leave out uh, the attention that you give to national perceptions or worldviews in Chinese uh, uh, as key factors in the relationship between the two countries. So two questions here. First, why do you place so much emphasis on what you call the uh, prism of accumulated national perceptions in the U.S.-China relationship? And then secondly, I thought that among the many uh, important discussions in your book, uh, your sections on the views from Beijing of the United States and the views from Washington did an excellent job of conveying uh, these two sets of views, and you articulated some of this at the beginning of our conversation. But could you highlight some of the gaps in perception that you see between Washington and Beijing and how they specifically add to the risk of bilateral conflict? Yeah. um, The reason I spent so long Mm -hmm. on strategic Mm -hmm. perceptions is partly the product of my own experience as a practitioner. Mm -hmm. If you sit down opposite Xi Jinping, which I've done before, and uh, Hu Jintao, and to some extent Jiang Zemin, uh, and as a kid diplomat sitting in a room with, uh, with Deng Xiaoping back in the Mesolithic period of my <laughs> career, um, uh, you, any objective um, analysis of an exchange is that well beyond the talk, talking points of the meeting, uh, that is simply the, the tip of the iceberg, most of which lies beneath the surface. And what lies beneath the surface is an accumulated set, not just of national interests and national values, but deep perceptions of the other side. And it's quite, quite critical we unpack that to each other so that we actually understand what's driving the broader political establishments in both countries. So in the case of the Chinese, I mean, their deep perceptions are shaped by uh, both the reality and the propaganda manipulation of the century of national humiliation from the Opium Wars through to the end of the Japanese occupation in 45. But associated with that is a great sense of um, China ha- having not been treated with respect by the collective West for a long period of time. And there is a sense of China finally being able to get its comeuppance. Uh, and we can't just wish that away. That's just a reality. And if as a culture and a civilization you've been and experienced the rape of Nanjing... Um, and, if, and as a culture uh, and a civilization, you've suffered the humiliation of the British during the First and Second Opium Wars, which no one, frankly, in the collective West could remotely morally justify uh, in the 21st century, then we can't just wish that away and say it's not a legitimate part of Chinese political consciousness. It's, it's there. It's a reality. And there's an associated one, too, which is the question of race. Um, hard to discuss in this country, but I'm a um, I'm a um, a, a um, uh, bluntly spoken Australian, and among friends in the United States, I can say that when you look at the accumulation of uh, racist immigration laws in this country, and in my own Australia, by the way, towards Chinese immigration in the 19th century and the 20th century. This has left an accumulated set of perceptions um, in China uh, that uh, the United States racially has looked down its nose at China for a long period of time. It's an uncomfortable reality, but it's true. Of course, in the the reverse direction, Chinese Communist Party's deep perceptions of the United States um, is a deeply um, challenged institution uh, 
which has long seen its ideological nemesis lying in American liberal democracy. You know the history as well as I. The early experiments with liberalism in China, Liang Qichao, Hu Shi, the entire uh, shebang in the 20s and 30s in particular. Um, And if you look at the history of the Chinese Communist Party, there's deep paranoia about uh, the ultimate ideological adversary being liberal democratic freedom. Um, And uh, time and time again in the party's history, uh, through to Tiananmen and through to uh, what's called uh, these days um, uh, the propaganda documents of the uh, Chinese Communist Party, Mm. railing still in in recent years about the existential threat posed by these ideas uh, to uh, the Chinese Communist Party notion of, uh, of the legitimacy of political power and how power should be distributed within societies. So that's part of the deep perceptions <laughs> as well. Um, so these things, in my view, need to be in the minds of public policy makers uh, rather than simply thinking it's all tabula rasa, it's all just a blank sheet of paper and let's all sit down and just deal rationally with the issues of the day. No one in politics is like that (laughs) domestically or internationally. Well, some of the points you made make me want to ask you this question. Uh, Looking at China as a foreign policy actor, one of the challenges in dealing with China internationally uh, that you you really address head-on is what you call a Leninist predisposition to maintain secrecy at all Mm. costs. And this propensity, uh, you suggest, reinforces a view that China is untrustworthy. And the idea is, if it's not truthful with its own people, uh, it can't be trusted. And I would add that uh, we see uh, China's comfort with straddling uh, what looked to the West as some uh, very divergent, even contradictory international positions, uh, contributes to a view that China prefers ambiguity uh, or dissembling. Uh, A lot of people, uh, policymakers might even label this opportunism on the part of China. Uh, in your book, you, you make mention the case of Scarborough Shoal, where uh, after Chinese vessels crowded around a Philippine-controlled uh, disputed shoal, that created a dangerous standoff, and, uh, and, the, and uh, the, uh, with the U.S. allies, um, the Philippines Navy over the shoal, and the United States negotiated a withdrawal. Uh, the Philippines Navy dutifully withdrew, uh, and China remained. Uh, others might point to Hong Kong and, uh, and an assessment that China failed to uphold uh, the terms of its return uh, to China, uh, China's governance from Britain. And then there are many other examples that raise concerns uh, among uh, Western policymakers in particular about negotiated agreements with Beijing. So what do you say to those concerns? Um, that Leninists ultimately uh, respect what you do and not what you say. Mm. And in responding to Leninists, we should be deeply conscious of what we do mm. and frankly um, uh, make sure that what we say is reflected in that which we do. Um, furthermore, what I'd say is uh, Chinese Leninists uh, deeply respectful of strength and are institutionally and culturally uh, contemptuous of weakness, both domestically and internationally. If you look at the history of the Chinese Communist Party in the Civil War from 21 to 49... Uh, this is a bunch of deep strategic realists um, in their execution of a Marxist-Leninist uh, revolution. Uh, Mao knew when to retreat uh, when he was in deep trouble and when to fight, for example, in the period after 45, uh, with the defeat of the Japanese, uh, based on the uh, military possibilities of the time. So my argument to the United States is uh, in order to sustain American uh, national interests, as we discussed before, Uh, This level of absolute um, clarity of what you articulate uh, to the Chinese in your operational behaviour on the high seas, in the air, uh, what you do in terms of um, economic um, uh, activity, limitations, sanctions and those things you choose not to sanction. Um, I often think in the United States, and, and particularly in the United States Congress, there is a confusion between operational and declaratory strategy. Um, uh, We would be a lot more advanced, uh, both as the United States uh, and as uh, US allies in our dealings with the People's Republic of China, if 95% of the focus was on the clarity and consistency of our operational behavior and its its 
and its consistency with a coherent strategy uh, of deterrence, as opposed to what I would describe as this um, continued uh, rhetorical attraction to what we put into our declaratory strategy about the Chinese uh, on every and every day of the week. Uh, furthermore, if your emphasis is on the declaratory side rather than the operational side, then you create all sorts of opportunities to cause offence, cultural offence and, and the rest, uh, which frankly clouds out your ability to deal with the substantive issues of the day. So I have a deeply realist view of uh, how you deal with Leninists. Now, those of us who come from social democratic parties, like I do, by the way, for 100 years since the uh, Second International in the 1880s, we've dealt with the problem of communist parties challenging centre-left parties, whether it's in Europe or the United States or my own country, Australia. So we have some familiarity of what actually needs to be done in terms of firmness and clarity. I think it would be good if that was reflected in the way in which foreign security policy is articulated as well. I guess I have to ask, is that possible in the American system where we have you know, a whole lot of policymakers in Congress and in the Senate, uh, all with a platform. And, and I know the Chinese watch their statements very, very carefully and often attribute to them polit- policy weight because they may uh, presage uh, legislative action. Well, I think in its, uh, its own way, the Chinese um, manage a, um, a certain diversity of its own position. Take, for example, what the People's Daily says as opposed to what Global Times says. People's Daily is one of the four organs of the Chinese Communist Party, so we all assiduously, Carla, you and me, we read the opinion pieces, we, uh, we read the editorials, we know what the line is. Uh, and then, of course, uh, we have the Chinese think tanks who will say things which are maybe in variance with the line. Uh, and then you have Global Times, which is frankly an in-your-face, knock them down, punch them out, uh, let's kick the Americans in the guts um, and their allies um, uh, what we uh, really uh, do think about uh, the attitudes of the collective West, which the party and the government can formally disown. So we shouldn't say that the Chinese are completely pristine on this question. They're not. Certainly in the divided government of the United States between the legislative branch, and the executive and the judiciary, uh, the Chinese are sophisticated and understand the difference here. My comments about um, the discipline necessary uh, between operational strategy and declaratory strategy applies to the executive branch. Uh, under the Biden administration, what I do see is infinitely greater levels of discipline about uh, what it says and what it does. Uh, the Trump administration, uh, to be honest, was like this wild roller coaster ride. Um, that's as an ally before you even tried to make sense of it at the Beijing end. Uh, as you had uh, the president uh, saying quite different things to the Secretary of State, the Secretary of Commerce, and you had an executive divided between hawks and doves in everything they said on a given day. Uh, And that led to, I think, a high degree of incoherence uh, as perceived by allies, but also perceived as strategic weakness by the Chinese themselves. Very interesting. Well, I want to pivot to a discussion of what makes up a considerable part of your book, uh, China's top party state military leader, Xi Jinping. And I know you've given a great deal of time to studying him as a figure, and I think you are about to get your uh, defil at at Oxford. uh, Let's see if I pass uh, my Bible. That lies ahead of me. You you will be writing, you've written a thesis on Xi Xi Jinping, and he, of course, came uh, to power in China in 2012-2013 and followed... uh, quite a less charismatic leader, Hu Jintao. So I wanted to give you a chance to talk about Xi and his role in the current state of U.S.-China relations, and indeed maybe China's international role more broadly. Uh, but one point that you make in your book that I wanted to, you to address, because I think it will be of great interest to the audience, uh, is that under Xi Jinping, the Chinese Communist Party decided that China had more in common with Russia uh, than with the United States. And I wanted you to help us understand why that is, how does it relate to Xi Jinping's leadership and the impact that Xi has had on the direction of Chinese policy. Uh, and because we're focusing on U.S.-China relations, uh, in foreign and in security policy, it, I might add that you describe Xi, I think this is wonderful, as a Marxist nationalist. Hmm. That is the term I use, and that's the term uh, I advance in my thesis. Um, if I was trying to synthesize how I see Xi Jinping's ideological worldview... 
uh, it is as a Marxist nationalist. If I was to unpack that one stage further, it would be, when I look at Xi on the economy, uh, I see a Marxist shift to the left, uh, away from state-owned enterprises, uh, towards state-owned enterprises, away from the private sector, uh, and in the direction of a, a greater equalitarian distribution of wealth. I see Xi as Leninist on the party, um, moving again politics to the left, constraining the, the political space available for individuals or uh, NGOs or even the professional apparatus of the Chinese state in favour of the central Leninist discipline of, a part of the Chinese Communist Party. But I also see in the legitimacy stakes uh, Xi Jinping moving Chinese nationalism to the right that is a uh, much more assertive uh, Chinese foreign and security policy, uh, much more seeking to advance uh, China's national interests internationally uh, and, a, and deep appeals to nationalist sentiment in a way in which his predecessors by and large did much less of. So when I use the term Marxist nationalism, I don't use it casually. I seek to reflect what I have deduced from Xi's writings and his ideological pronouncements over the 10 years that he's been in office. So that Marxist nationalism, I think, we see perme permeating uh, the policy actions uh, also of the Chinese party state uh, in pure politics and economic policy, but frankly, how we encounter it now around the rest mm. of the world. As a personality, uh, Xi Jinping, therefore, is formidable, just formidable. Uh, if I look at his Machiavellian skillcraft domestically and how he's managed uh, political opposition, this has been brutal. Uh, Anti-corruption campaign, which is not just about corruption, it's about knocking on the head a range of your political opponents, uh, taking out uh, previous standing committee members, serving Politburo members, uh, the leadership of the Central Military Commission, uh, this guy is uh, is uh, not, you know, an attender of your average Sunday school. Um, he's um, in the hard business of Leninist politics. But it creates, uh, Carla, I think, vulnerabilities for Xi Jinping on the Russia question. Because of that worldview, um, if you look at the evolution, particularly of Russia-China relations since the uh, Russian occupation of Crimea in 2014 through to the present... This has been a, a radical, as it were, acceleration uh, of um, a renormalization of that relationship, uh, almost back to the period, I would just say, of uh, Sino-Soviet condominium in 4959, mm -hmm. uh, to the point where, if you look at the, the architecture, the formal documents of the relationship today, it's tantamount uh, to a common security uh, arrangement short of a, just short of a mutual defence mm. pact. Um, and this very much reflects the authoritarian worldviews of Xi and Putin. And for the future, I think, uh, creates um, uh, a genuine uh, challenge uh, for the United States and the rest of the world. But the vulnerability is this. When you've seen Putin uh, overreach so much on Ukraine and the Chinese position consistent with this normalization and radicalization, if you like, of the Russia-China relationship to the point where the Chinese have uh, informally locked in behind the, the Russian position, whatever they may say mm -hmm. publicly about their neutrality. This is a degree of overreach uh, by Xi Jinping on foreign policy, which has got some of the comrades feeling quite mm -hmm. uncertain and I think creates uh, one of a number of vulnerabilities which are now alive in Chinese politics for Xi Jinping's own future. Could you talk a little bit about more about that while I have you? <laughs> well, um, most of us who follow um, uh, Chinese Politburo politics closely, um, and uh, regrettably I have to confess I've done so for 40 years since I was a junior woodchuck in the Australian Embassy in Beijing uh, back in the Neolithic period um, uh, mm -hmm. of my career. Um, uh, we understand the ebbs and flows of Chinese Politburo politics and internal Communist Party politics, and we're always handicapped by the opacity of the system. Uh, and very few of us have ever got in, 
predictively any of the big calls right. Um, you know, what would have happened after the purge of Mao? What would happen after the death of Deng? Uh, what would happen to Hu Yaobang and Jiang Ziyang? These are very difficult things because a Leninist party is deeply committed to the secrecy which we spoke about before. But I think objectively I could say Xi Jinping right now faces three or four sets of core vulnerabilities. One, abolition of term limits for the presidency and therefore creating once again the potentiality of being leader for life really rubs up the wrong way with many within the Chinese Communist Party and not just Jiang Zemin and Hu Jintao, both of whom are still alive and those around them but others who do have legitimate fears about the return of a second Mao. Second, um, um, the um, uh, movement to the general left in Chinese politics, which constrains the space of normally strongly party-supporting academics, non-government organisations, etc., or an ability to have just an open political discourse within the system, uh, that creates its own reaction as well as the discipline of the party and upholding, as the Chinese documents have said in recent years, uh, the core leadership of Xi Jinping as the new helmsman of the Chinese political system. That rubs people up the wrong way and creates its own enmities and, uh, and concerns. The overreach on the economy in pushing the centre of gravity of Chinese economic policy back towards the left and in my view, being one of the causative factors of what we've seen is a de-acceleration of Chinese growth numbers. That's creating a bigger reaction, particularly in the corporate sector in China and the private sector, which generates 60% of GDP, um, and frankly, um, a large, very large proportion of Chinese economic growth. Final vulnerability, the pandemic. Um, remember, we've had two years of the Chinese system and Xi Jinping saying, uh, we've saved uh, China from uh, this pandemic while all those crazy liberal capitalists uh, led by the United States have just let it rip. Uh, look at the rest of the, the democratic world. They let it rip. They weren't able to bring in the social disciplines necessary to control it like we good communists. Problem. It's now spilt over the border from Hong Kong. Shenzhen's in lockdown. Uh, Jilin and Changchun uh, uh, and uh, parts of Manchuria in the northeast. Similarly... And so this is a conundrum for the year ahead. Here's a real wild card for you <laughs> for the year ahead. Who knows how Ukraine ultimately will play out? Who knows what will happen in the case of uh, President Putin? But if things went really bad on Ukraine uh, for the Russians um, and you begin to see Putin's position challenged domestically or even Putin falling, you as a China scholar yourself know that events in Moscow... Uh, when they involve the most senior leaders, do have their reverberations within Chinese domestic politics as well. And if Xi Jinping has put all of his eggs in the Vladimir Putin basket, and Putin was not uh, a durable proposition and even fell, put all those factors together in the admixture of the Beidou-He meetings of August this year and the lead-up to the 20th Party Congress in November, Suddenly, what I've always assumed to be the inevitability of a Xi Jinping reappoint, because he's such a formidable Machiavellian politician, looks more contested. That's the, more, that's the most I could say, more contested. Fascinating. You talk in your book about Xi's priorities for China, and you, you give us a, an image of ten circles. Mm. Uh, maybe comment on, on why you chose the image of circles uh, to capture uh, Xi's uh, relative uh, priorities and which ones, uh, maybe the top three or four, do you see as having uh, the most impact on the U.S.-China relationship? And, or maybe because of your comments just now uh, that you you may see Xi reassessing, perhaps. Yeah, the reason I've chosen a series of concentric circles as a as the metaphor for trying mm -hmm. to make sense of let's call it Xi Jinping's worldview and the priorities within it is uh, to enable the general readership of books like the one I've written, uh, to have a, an easier analytical hand on making sense of what China is doing on a given day mm -hmm. of the week. As you know, those of us in the sinological world uh, sometimes speak a dialect which the uh, intelligent public policy you know, uh, audience of the United States or other countries find baffling. And so our job is to de-baffle it 
You know what I mean? <laughs> and so that's why I've, I've tried to list it almost as what I describe as, um, if you're familiar with Maslow and the hierarchy of needs, mm-hmm. is uh, what's the Chinese uh, Mas- Maslowian uh, <laughs> hierarchy of needs or Maslowian. I'm never quite sure what the adjective from Maslow might be. Um, not my fear. Your, your guess is as good as mine. <laughs> <laughs> so I essentially say very quickly... Keeping the party in power and the leader in power is always number one. It's the centre of everything. Marxist Leninists are like that. Number two, unity of the motherland. It's part of the religion. Xinjiang, Tibet, Taiwan. Number three, uh, growing the economy um, in order to ensure that that part of the legitimacy equation uh, remains in place. Uh, Four, ensuring that you now do so in a manner which is environmentally sustainable because... It's not just feeling good about it. It's just about not having dirty water, polluted land and polluted air, which kills you too early in life. Mm-hmm. Uh, five, uh, ensuring that uh, the neighbouring states are under control. Um, there's 14 neighbouring states. Mm-hmm. That's a lot. Um, six, uh, make sure that you've got a robust and growing military uh, in order to provide security, not just for the party, but for security in your immediate neighbourhood. Um, Seven, of course, is ensuring that in the maritime periphery, uh, which is looking towards the United States and its treaty allies, uh, that you've got um, that uh, maximally under control. And that's where, of course, the theatres that we've spoken Mm. about with uh, Taiwan and with Southeast Asia, uh, sorry, with the South China Sea and the East China Sea remain so um, uh, significant. Eight, um, the continental periphery, Belt and Road Initiative, uh, to give China greater strategic depth all the way to Europe and turn that into uh, a theatre of economic opportunity and therefore ultimate foreign policy compliance with the interests of the Chinese system. Nine, the the ROW, the rest of the world. Um, China is the traditional champion of the G77 in both Africa and Latin America and the rest of Asia and hence why the Belt and Road Initiative again, but China's new posture in terms of international development assistance is seen as enhancing China's ultimate global numbers, if you like, which brings us to 10, which is changing the rules of the international system itself uh, in a manner more compatible, as we discussed before, with Chinese authoritarian values um, and, uh, and Chinese national interests. But through the institutions of global governance, where China then, through its economic diplomacy, has much greater levels of diplomatic support and in, in, in individual votes in the United Nations and in securing in, uh, the candidatures to take control over international institutions and machinery which is now able to deliver those changes on the ground from uh, their position on the, um, the IMF through to who runs um, the International Civil, Asia, Civil Aviation Organization who's now setting the industry standards for internet governance in the world and the product standards in 5G and the rest. So the reason I use concentric circles from the most important, shall I say, to the least important is the wrong term, mm-hmm. but, um, but uh, extensions of the central principle of uh, party control is that that's the prism in my judgment through which the Chinese view reality and prioritise their actions. Mm couple of thoughts here. Uh, I'm, I'm wondering which, uh, where is China looks out uh, to this uh, complicated international regional environment. It sees uh, the biggest threats. It has you know, Xi Jinping and Putin's relationship. That has certainly um, helped um, make that important bilateral relationship, that long border, uh, which used to be such a problem, hmm. a, lot, uh, a lot less of a problem. Uh, and also helped uh, the two countries work out their mutual interest in, or different interest in Central Asia. When when uh, she looks out to the to the region, what are his main concerns? Is it Japan? Is it Taiwan? I think you're right, Carla, to point to the Russia stabilization factor mm. as in a huge Chinese enduring strategic interest, given the complex 400-year history of the Russia-China relationship, mm. Tsarist expansion loss of the Russian, uh, loss of the uh, Chinese territory as the, uh, to what became known as the uh, Soviet and then Russian Mm. Far East, Russian Soviet, then Russian Far East, Um, 
through to Sino-Soviet confrontation uh, and a highly contested border with border crises and conflicts throughout the 60s um, through to where we are now. So when people think that... um, that China's lens for looking at Ukraine, for example, is does China get a bad reputation or a good reputation mm-hmm. in the rest of the world because of where it stands with Putin, the invasion of Ukraine, they need to understand the much deeper and broader historical and strategic context which the Chinese bring to bear with the Russia relationship. There's no way in the world the Chinese want to return to a period where they face strategic adversaries, given the size of the Russian nuclear arsenal, across the border. So it's a very important uh, strategic consideration. I think across the rest of their international landscape, uh, their principal uh, concern remains uh, the future of Taiwan. Uh, Their next principal concern uh, is in a future Taiwan scenario, what will Japan do? Because Japanese posture in Taiwan is changing. Uh, You have to look carefully at the statements of um, Prime Minister Kishida, Uh, Prime Minister Suga, even Prime Minister Abe, and Abe now from retirement, uh, which is a dramatic hardening in the Japanese position on uh, defence of Taiwan. Uh, I am surprised by it. Mm -hmm. I follow Japanese politics reasonably. Um, So that, I think, is what they see. The Quad worries them uh, because suddenly at the Chinese view that these four could never agree with each other, uh, that the Indians were sui generis uh, and uh, and, uh, the Australians would always, in the Chinese view, do what the Americans told them to do and the Japanese most of the time. But now you have this strategic uh, arrangement with the four which surprised Beijing. Uh, And... Even with AUKUS uh, involving Australia, United Kingdom, United States, and the extension of uh, American uh, nuclear propulsion technology to the Australians, uh, this creates a further level of complexity. Mm-hmm. So I think Russia keeping it under control, <laughs> the Taiwan-Japan scenario, because that's uh, where uh, a crisis uh, would erupt, and the, um, and the capabilities which would be deployed apart from those the United States itself. And then, well, broadly now with India and the Quad, and then these uh, nuclear questions associated with AUKUS. Well, I, I think we have to talk a little bit more about Taiwan um, because it's the place and the issue that, as you, you say, really represents the greatest threat to peace between the United States and China. And in your book, you boldly... I'll lay out 10 alternative futures uh, for U.S.-China relations during this decade of living dangerously. And you note that there are some fixed factors, one of them being uh, the continuing growth of China's military capabilities. Mm-hmm. But there are a lot of other uh, unknowns uh, and uh, many, many, many variables. But all, many of the scenarios that you uh, work through consider conflict between the U.S. and China over Taiwan. And generally, the United States doesn't fare terribly well in those scenarios. Uh, You explore what you call a Munich moment, where the U.S. doesn't respond to an effort by Xi to effect a military solution to the Taiwan question. You consider an American Waterloo, uh, where a war fought uh, so close to China. Um, Of course, Taiwan is only about 100 miles uh, or so across the Taiwan Strait. Uh, China not only takes Taiwan... Uh, but by so doing, likely through a much more expansive conflict, it decisively ends the American century. And then you also consider what you call an American midway. Uh, but I, I, that, that, if I recall, uh, creates a stalemate uh, a la Korean Peninsula uh, over Taiwan. Uh, so I wanted you to talk a little bit more about those scenarios. Uh, and because of the uh, Russia's aggression toward Ukraine, maybe contemplate whether... Uh, that has changed any of the alternative futures that you lay out. Yeah, I've um, because Taiwan is central, as you pose uh, mm-hmm. the question legitimately, um, uh, I've had to um, probe what it would look like. It's mm-hmm. an uncomfortable thing to do, mm-hmm. but you need to. And I don't throw around the terms Munich moment and Waterloo mm-hmm. moment uh, or Midway moment mm-hmm. or, frankly, um, a Korean moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, idly, uh, 
because I think it's important for us to conceptualise. We can only often envisage the future by drawing on references from the past, which which we have some familiarity. Um, what American allies around the world, of course, fear most is uh, Munich moments. Um, and um, quite interesting vis-a-vis the Ukraine mm-hmm. that you've just referenced, um, that um, as it evolves, it has thus far not become a Munich moment, notwithstanding the fact that the United States and its NATO partners have um, been very cautious about direct um, military engagement uh, using indirect and military means. Um, the midway moment uh, actually is about um, uh, American victory. Um, that is, that the Communist Party leadership radically mm. miscalculate uh, over Taiwan, that America does intervene with the Taiwanese, and the Americans and the Taiwanese manage to prevail mm. in one form or another. Mm. And as we know, Midway wasn't the end of the Pacific mm. War, but it was a significant turning point. Uh, Coral Sea, Midway, and then eventually the um, the campaign uh, back to um, Okinawa and then to, and to Japan itself. Um, the untidiness of the Korean outcome is uh, what shape that would look like in terms of Taiwan, given it's one island. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's much untidier. But if we reflect on what has happened to Ukraine, mm-hmm. which is a country uh, now effectively with uh, Russian-dominated areas, and not just in Donbass uh, and not just uh, Crimea, but other pockets of the country as well, it's worth thinking through. But I think you're right to pose this question against all those um, scenarios and sub-scenarios for a future Taiwan crisis. Um, China's strategic landscape is now somewhat more complicated because of, um, oh, let's call it Russian excess uh, over Ukraine. Um, my argument is that um, it will not fundamentally derail uh, China's own sense of its own timetables for dealing with Taiwan the principal factor there will be the ongoing deterrent or non-deterrent effect of uh, American and Taiwanese military preparedness. But the second deterrent effect is the one where I think the Russian example becomes most acute, and that is the risk of financial and economic sanctions. My argument has long been that uh, we will not face a Taiwan crisis this decade, but I'm much less certain about the 2030s. Mm. Why do I say that? It's not just changing the military balance of power much more decisively in Beijing's favour during the course of the 2020s in the absence of an effective American and Taiwanese response is actually how uh, China eventually insulates itself against financial and economic damage. And the parallel economic strategy in China is to national self-sufficiency, as you know, uh, technological self-sufficiency, um, so much of what Xi Jinping's n- new development concept is, is on about. Plus, in terms of his financial measures, um, to get the Chinese financial system to be big enough, bold enough and ugly enough by the end of the decade, to then cross the Rubicon of, um, of um, liberalising the Chinese capital account, yes. floating the Chinese yuan, and then be confident enough that a... Um, sanctions regime in a dollar-denominated world would no longer pose the threats that they now see being meted out to the Russians and which they've theoretically always feared themselves. So when they've seen the collective West and beyond the West uh, impose such hard sanctions against uh, Moscow, I think it has uh, an effect in the Chinese internal discourse on this Mm about how well insulated they will need to be on that front before pulling any military levers. And that is very much an equation again for the late 20s. Well, that suggests uh, some additional momentum toward more decoupling, perhaps, between the Western and Chinese economies, which has its own you know, factors that could contribute to further destabilization, I would think. Yeah, I agree with that. I think mm-hmm. one of the miscalculations or um, in misconceived analyses in the United States is um, should we Americans decouple uh, from China or not? My judgment, and I may be proven wrong, 
is that as of about 2019, Xi Jinping reached a conclusion that the Americans were going to decouple. Uh, so why not China decouple from the United States on China's terms as early as possible mm. in order to reduce China's vulnerability that is supply chain disruption to financial uh, disruption slash sanctions and technology disruption by achieving higher and higher levels of national self-sufficiency. So when I look at the, the wellsprings underpinning Xi's, uh, quote, new development concept mm. as the replacement to the Deng Xiaoping concept of reform and opening, uh, I see a lot of, uh, shall I say, national security um, uh, related strategic logic in it, um, separate from what I describe as the productivity based, efficiency based, uh, international economic competitiveness based logic of the reform and opening period. Well, we just have a few minutes left, but uh, you address uh, some of the the uh, steps that the United States needs to do uh, to uh, shift the trend lines in the relationship. Uh, some of those things require strengthening the United States. How does the United States t- take steps without then triggering a competitive or adversarial response from China? I've personally felt that the United States-China uh, relationship might get worse if Beijing no longer saw the United States as a declining power. It's a, it's a, uh, it's a deep and probing question that you ask. But we must always, when we pose those questions, consider the alternative, which is, um, uh, as Britain um, gently slid um, from its dominant global position, uh, prior to the First World War, into semi-retirement in the interwar period. <laughs> um, and unfortunately, uh, that producing the strategic circumstances where others saw opportunities mm-hmm. rising. The 30s, an isolationist America still, and through the 20s uh, prior to that. And then, of course, the strategic opportunities uh, created for the rise of, um, of fascism uh, in Europe. So... Um, I think in terms of the preservation of the uh, liberal international order, uh, there is no other fundamental underpinnings uh, which exist other than American strategic and economic power. It can be an expanded concept whereby uh, what is the critical mass of the American, um, let's call it economic and military reality, is augmented by a much more cohesive set of relationships with its major, I say this major, European and Asian allies. For example, um, just on the economic argument, um, though I'm not a member of the United States mm-hmm. Congress and I'm unlikely to become one, the, uh, uh, rather than this crazy debate you have in this country about NAFTA, uh, and I, I still cannot pronounce uh, the acronym which rep- replace NAFTA, um, whatever it is, uh, the United States, Canada, Mexico. If this became, frankly, a North American economic union, and to that you added, um, let's call it the principal economies uh, of Asia, Japan, India, Australia, the ROK, and you added Germany, France, the United Kingdom, As we say in Australia, you'd be cooking with gas because this is a very big combined economic entity. If it was effectively over time a single market uh, for goods, uh, for capital, for technology and for population. People often assume that China is one huge critical mass of 1.4 billion, which you and I both know is now in a state of decline and rapid ageing. In the United States, it's becoming... Uh, Frankly, uh, the age demographic is reversed by migration. Um, But if you were to aggregate 300 million Americans with um, 100 million Mexicans and, say, 50 million Canadians, um, you're looking at an entity of around about 600 million people uh, with high per capita income levels against um, a China which by mid-century would be about 1.2 billion people uh, of a rapidly aging population, and that's just say middle income, middle to upper middle income levels. It's not necessary, therefore, written in the stars, 
that America becomes the second largest economy in the world, uh, depending on how you manage it. Fascinating. Well, thank you for this wonderful conversation about your important book. Pleasure to talk with you today. Well, thanks so much for the opportunity to be on uh, C-SPAN, and uh, I hope people uh, buy the book and read it and tell me what they think. Thanks for listening to this week's Afterwards podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, listen to C-SPAN's podcast about books. Learn about the latest nonfiction books and best-selling authors. In each episode, we report on bestsellers lists and book reviews from around the country. You'll also hear authors talking about their latest books and insider interviews with nonfiction book publishing industry experts. <laughs>